our study in 2 Kings. We have already studied 1 Kings, and we're actually in the end chapters of 2 Kings, but we still have a ways to go. Uh, this evening, I want to uh, talk about a few things. So, first of all, I want to mention about my, my friend, Dale Mullinex, who was here this last Sunday. Um, a, a year ago, he preached our Bible conference and just did an excellent job, and we're going to have him back again sometime. But he, uh, he has a real uh, interest in reptiles, and he has a collection of reptiles as his, at his house. So last year when he, we were done with the Bible conference, he asked me if we could go out and you know, look for some snakes. He's looking for uh, a very colorful bull snake. Is, is what he is, what he's looking for. But it was interesting because we discussed it and we, we, we made a distinction right away. Okay, so you're a pastor who hunts snakes, but you're not a pastor who handles snakes, a snake handler. Okay, not one of those. And interesting enough, of course he's not, but and interesting enough, I, when I was in Bible college, we had seen a movie of... A church and a pastor that they were snake handlers and they were handling um, they were handling poisonous snakes and if I if I understand correctly it was quite a few years ago but if I understood correctly the professor said at the end of that video which they didn't show it that pastor got bit and I think he may have died so the reason I say that is because this evening we're going to talk about Hezekiah great king. You know, he's the one that people will say, okay, do you know where Hezekiah chapter 7 verse 6 is? And you catch people on that. There's no book called Hezekiah. But he was such a great king and started a great revival in Israel. So for all the times we've been studying these kings in both 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we're it's over and over they're bad kings. Maybe they start out good, but they end up bad. Well, we've come to a breath of fresh air, and there's going to be a revival. But when I say the word revival, I really am very careful about that. Because today, if you would talk about revival, all kinds of Christians would have all kinds of different ideas about what a revival is. We're going to see a biblical revival with Hezekiah, much like we saw in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But I have a couple of quotes here. The first one is, while multitudes clamor for a massive revival, what the body of Christ def desperately needs is a mighty reformation. Only as the church is reformed, Will the culture be revived? The real experience is not found in the works of the flesh. Rather, it is found in the basic fundamentals through the word of God. And speaking of revival, many, many years ago, um, we had Dr. John Wickham. I don't know if you remember that, Shelley, or not. Dr. John Wickham had come here and uh, who is John Wickham? Well, if you remember, he and Henry Morris uh, wrote a book together about the Genesis flood, the Genesis record, and um, just tremendous. Well, he, he was a great man of God, a very gracious man of God. Um, he used to say, Lord, give us 
critical minds, but not critical hearts. Wow. But anyway, even back then, he said, you know, all things are possible and God could bring a revival. He said, but in order for a revival to happen, there must be the exaltation of the word of God. And he said, the trend of that is going down and down and down to where he did not think there would be another revival. Well, here's a couple of other quotes on this. You know, some time ago, there was that uh, Toronto blessing and people, they were having a revival. And one of the evidences of the revival was that people would get drunk in the spirit. They would get slain in the spirit. They would get stuck in the spirit. And, and here's one such story about a woman who was lying down because she had been slain in the spirit from noon until 1.30. At 1.30, she tried to get up. She wanted to get up, but she couldn't. All she could do was flap her hands. So she was lying there flapping away. Flap, flap, flap. And by the way, the one who's writing this is writing this as a good thing, as a demonstration of a, of a great revival. 2.30, 3.30, 4.30. the woman was still saying, I can't get up. I'm stuck on the floor. And it's interesting that there were two pastors there. And the one pastor said to the other, look, I haven't had either breakfast or lunch. It's 4.30. I'm not stuck. Are you stuck? Let's go out and get a bite to eat. And, and you see how frivolous that is. This whole idea about... Uh, people getting drunk in the Holy Spirit. We think of the verse in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And I'm going to have you turn there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 is a tremendous verse, but it is taken out of context by some. Ephesians 5, 18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And I will say there is an analogy there. What's the analogy? Is the analogy that you're just out of control when you're filled with the Spirit like you are when you're drunk? No. In fact, when you go through the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, you are not out of control when you are filled with the Spirit, but you are in control, or better yet, the Holy Spirit is in control, and you are under control of the Holy Spirit. And here they talk about these people showing signs of intoxication. Uh, uh, there was one that they said that it, it came upon them, the holy laughter, and a police officer stopped them and asked them why they were driving so erratically, but the person couldn't speak. They were laughing so bad, and finally... The police officer was filled with the Holy Spirit and began laughing. Um, you know, of all the stories you hear, I don't know if I could ever believe that a police officer was laughing somebody driving erratically. And then later on, that same person was having this fit of hilarity, made supper for some of the pastors that came and had hot fish and french fries, didn't even bother to put it on plates, and just threw it on the table. And everybody was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and, and have this holy laughter. Beloved, that is not revival. That is not even close to biblical revival. So the whole idea with Ephesians 5.18 is not acting drunk, but being under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to now move now to 2 Kings chapter 18. If you will turn there, Hezekiah is the king that we're going to look at. And of course, from the southern kingdom, in fact, from now on, that's all we're going to do is look at kings from the southern kingdom because there are no kings in the northern kingdom because they have been defeated by Assyria and taken into captivity. The northern part of Israel, the divided kingdom, all that's left is the southern kingdom. And spoiler alert, they too will go into captivity, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Well, Hezekiah then becomes one of the kings, and he is the son of Ahaz. And if you remember, Ahaz was not a great king. Ahaz allowed the worship of idols. He encouraged it. He even encouraged sacrificing children to the gods. And he went and he saw some of the decor and some of these false places of worship to pagan gods, and he thought, hey, wouldn't that be great? Let's go back to the, to the temple in Jerusalem and have a renovation, and we'll use some of these pagan things. Well, praise the Lord that Hezekiah is, was not like him at all. Well, before we begin, I, I do always go over a review of where we've been. Uh, I, I feel it necessary in the book of Kings so we have the king whose name was Hosea. Now he will be mentioned a little bit here, but, but basically in 2 Kings chapter 17, he's done. He's done. He was the last king of Israel. And Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came and started besieging Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. He was imprisoned. They eventually, they eventually captured Samaria and took Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity. Then they moved other nations into Samaria. Now, if you remember last time, these other nations were from pagan nations. And there probably were some Israelites still there. They probably only took the best of the Israelites to captivity and they left the poor and the weak and the sick there. But these other nations had settled in Samaria, but there was no fear of God. Well, what happened? Well, God allowed the lions to increase in number, and the lions were used as punishment to those who did not fear God. And we talked about that. Well, as a result, they decided, well, let's go to the captivity and bring back at least one priest, if not more priests, and teach the people how to do the customs of Yahweh, how to do the customs of the Lord. In other words, not a revival, not serve him, not worship him, but we must be doing something wrong. We're going left when we should be going right. We're doing something wrong. And of course, what's so ironic is the reason why the northern kingdom is in captivity in the first place 
is because they worship the Lord and pagan gods. And now they're going to call back one of those priests to teach the people how to do what? Well, to worship the Lord and pagan gods. It's not going to get any better. By the way, that should be an indication of the wrong type of revival. We're not having a revival in the sense of we're trying to copy culture. We're having a revival that's totally biblical and of the Lord that we're trying to change culture and submit it to the word of God. Well, at that point, we concluded, or 2 Kings concluded, with going over the details of why Israel had been punished by the Lord. And we had been talking about this from the very beginning. The, the main sin is that they were worshiping the other gods. God had told them that in the book of Deuteronomy. God had told them throughout the book of Kings. And still they did not. They did not turn to the Lord wholly. And he said, that's it. I'm going to take you from the promised land, the land that I gave you. I'm now taking you away from that land. And then we come to 2 Kings chapter 18 with Hezekiah. Talk about a breath of fresh air. Well, before we look at 2 Kings chapter 18, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly do learn from the examples of those who do not follow you and the, and the consequences that they have in their life, and it causes us to want to walk closer. But Father, we, we also need the example of those who do walk with you to show us, Father, how our heart should be. Our heart should be like David, a man after God's own heart. Our heart should be willingly following you, loving you, obeying your commandments. We see that with Hezekiah. Father, would you uh, teach us tonight, even though we're only going to get into 12 verses, we have a long way to go with Hezekiah, and I'm glad because we're going to see more examples of how we should live based on how he was one of the bright stars in the sad book of Kings. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18, and we'll begin with verse 1. And it says, Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, that's the king that we were just talking about. He was the last king of Israel. And you say, well, why are we talking about him now? Because we went from the northern kingdom, and now we're talking about the southern kingdom. And that's what the author does. He goes back and forth, mostly chronologically and very much thematically. Now, it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel. Israel means at this point the northern kingdom that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, Judah means the southern kingdom, became king. Well, we want, to, we want to just mention something here about the dates. And one of the things that we have seen is that the authors are, are very meticulous in the dating. And so this is not just a myth or fable. They, they are 
a, a strict way of looking at the dates and when the kings were there. Now, one of the difficulties is, is that sometimes the king, who's a son, was co-reigning with his father. So if you count those years, it's one number. But then at some point, the father dies, and the son becomes the king by himself. And then sometimes you see another set of numbers. It all depends on whether you're talking about, are you talking about when he was reigning with his father throughout the whole time? Or are you just talking about when he indeed had his soul reign? Well, as we look at these dates and things, it, we, we can figure some of it out. And here's the chronology. Uh, so you see on the right-hand side, the kings of Israel, we're not going to go through them, but look at the last one, Hosea. Then the left side are the kings of Judah. And of course, there's some blanks missing there because I couldn't get them all on one page. But the one we're talking about now is Hezekiah from 716 BC to 687. Now, another thing, so if, you, if you've been coming to the class, you've been following along, and we've been seeing some other kings, the kings of Assyria. Well, I thought it would be helpful if we looked at just quickly how they all fit in. So on the right are the kings of Assyria. And you remember we talked about Tiglath-Pileser. We talked about Shalmaneser. We've seen his name recently. And then we introduced Sargon, and before this is all done, we're going to see Sennacherib, and he, that we're going to see that later on in a different chapter. Now, on the left side, we have both the northern and the southern kingdom kings. I didn't really know how to do that, so I went with the blue and the gray. <laughs> so the blue is the northern, and the gray is the southern. And it began with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So after Solomon, we had David and Solomon. The kingdom was together. But when it came to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and Jeroboam, the kingdom split. And it's been split all the way through the book of Kings. So recently we talked about Pekah in the north, and then we looked at Jotham, and then Ahaz. And then we looked at Hosea, and now we're dealing with Hezekiah. So as we're looking at the dates, uh, I, I think, I th I think we, we have a pretty good idea of what it is, but it gets a little complicated. But believe it or not, I'm going to try to keep it simple. All right? So someone wrote, perhaps the naughtiest, not naughtiest, but the naughtiest with knots, the naughtiest of all scriptural chronological problems occurs in this chapter. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it takes a little bit to figure it out correctly. And so I write, perhaps the simplest way to tie it all together would be to look at John MacArthur's chronology. So it just seemed like the easiest one to look at. And the year would have been around 729. Now I know it says that he began in 716. But we believe that he began to reign with his father in 729 of Hosea's reign. So that's the explanation, and we're just going to go with that. It says he reigned for 29 years, 
And again, we're going to look at, you know, which was it that he was with his father and which was it what he was by himself. But anyway, we're just going to bypass all of that figuring, but we'll look at verse 2. It says, now he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Uh, the southern kingdom has Jerusalem and the temple. The northern kingdom did not have Jerusalem nor a temple. But they had golden calves. Yeah, they made golden calves to worship. Well, here is Hezekiah, and it says his mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. Now, what's interesting, we, we do sometimes look at Second Chronicles because it has more detail, and it helps us out. And so in Second Chronicles, her name is Abijah, We've seen men and kings with the name of Abijah. Uh, what it means is Yahweh is father. I don't think it was given any fatherly significance to Abijah, but perhaps it is telling us this. With Ahaz, such a terrible pagan father, where did Hezekiah get the training? From his mother, whose name means Yahweh his father and perhaps she taught him not to look to the ways of his earthly father who would not serve the Lord but to look to the ways of Yahweh and his word because when he becomes king man he's I mean he's already there it's not as if he becomes king and we need to sit down with him and we need to tell him that you have to serve the Lord and what that means I mean he he's already serving the Lord and it says it's the daughter of Zechariah. And if you look at the different Zechariahs in the scriptures, it's a common name, but the, nothing particular is assigned to this Zechariah except that that's the name of her father and his grandfather. But I thought it was interesting that the name Abijah means Yahweh is father. And here's this king, young king, 25 years old, not following in the ways of his earthly father but of his heavenly father. Verse 3, here's a breath of fresh air. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Now we have seen this phrase several times in the book of Kings, but a lot of times it begins with he did right before the Lord, but before it's all done, he's not doing right before the Lord. And we also see the phrase, like his father David. Now, that doesn't mean that David was his immediate father, but it meant that David was in his lineage, or he is in the lineage of David. And as we talked before, when just recently we did a series on David, a man after God's own heart, I really appreciated that study. I, I really enjoyed that study, and I learned the reason I did that study was because when you're going through the book of Kings, all they do is compare these kings with David. He is the standard. Now, of course, we know that David also sinned. And we talked about that in our series about how could David be a man after God's own heart when he sinned grievously? Well, we went to Psalm 51 and we saw how he repented extensively and heartfelt. And this is how it is. I mean, he repented and he changed. But every king is compared 
to David and praise the Lord, we finally have a king who it says he did what was right before the Lord as also his father David had done. Now, I, I want to just mention something here uh, as we think about this. There, there are indeed a few kings that this is said about. So it's not like all the kings were evil. It is like almost all the kings were evil and just a few. But here's a, here's a, a bright light. We're going to see another one before the second kings is over, and that's going to be Josiah. Josiah is also going to have some reformation. All right. Well, well, how do we know that he did right in the sight of the Lord? Well, let's look at the scriptures and we'll figure this out. Look at verse 4, and this is the biggie. All sin is sin. No sin is greater than another sin, okay? God doesn't take some sin lighter than others. All sin caused the death and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he died for sin, then he died for all sin, and so no sin is small. However, there are particular sins that the Lord emphasizes and says, look, this cannot happen. And the one that was the problem was they were worshiping other gods. It says that God's a jealous God. And he said, as long as you worship me, I will protect you. As long as you worship me, these things will not befall you. You will not have the consequences, and I will protect you and keep you from being defeated by your enemies and eventually in captivity. Well, these kings would allow the worship of these other gods, and they would allow them to put up these high places, these pillars, these Asherah poles to these other gods, and king after king was doing that. Now, some of the kings were good, but they never tore down these places. What makes Hezekiah so good is not only did he follow the Lord, but look at verse 4. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. And I'm going to just stop there. So the high places are exactly that, a high place. You, you go over to Israel, kind of reminds you a little bit like Wyoming with the rolling hills. Well, if you would imagine on every top of the hill of a rolling hill, they, the people there, the pagans, would have a, a shrine to one of these gods, a pillar, a tree, or something erected to these gods. And they were on every high place. And the kings came in, even though they were the kings of Israel, they came in and said, we have to worship Yahweh, but I'm not going to stop you from doing that. Hezekiah said, no. So he comes right out and he does that and he cuts them down. And then there's something else. It's almost a little bit of a surprise. It says, he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. And I read one commentary that said, it's as though Israel had a fetish to worship false gods and false things so that even they worshiped the bronze serpent that Moses had made. You remember 
they, the, the discipline of God came upon them and they were, they were bitten with snakes and they were going to die unless they looked away to this bronze pole and they looked away and as long as they looked at the pole, they would indeed survive. By the way, there was a type of Christ there. We are all bitten with sin. That's the problem. Christ took our sin. And what is salvation? Salvation is not me looking to myself to see how good I can try to become because I'm already bad. I've already sinned once. <laughs> I've sinned a lot more than once. And so have you. And so it's the idea nothing we do can take away our sin, but we look away to Christ. Our faith is in Christ and on Christ who took our sin. And when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior and sacrifice for our sin, we are forgiven and given eternal life. Well, they took this, symbol them, and began to burn incense to it. They began to worship. It's as if anything, if something fell from the sky, they begin to worship them. And this was God's chosen people we're talking about, Israel. Can you imagine God's heart? He says he's a jealous God. Could you imagine how often his heart was broken by the people of God, his people whom he called? And by the way, though, Scripture says he loves them with an everlasting love. He's not finished with them yet. Now, us, we'd have been done with them a long time ago. But the problem is, if that was the case, God would probably be done with us a long time ago, too. He loves them with an everlasting love, and there is going to be a program of restoration for Israel. But at this point, they are just steeped in idolatry. But Hezekiah, he tears these all down, and he even breaks this bronze serpent into pieces. And the, the word there, it gives the word for it. it they called it Nahushtan. And the, it was a Hebrew word that sounded like bronze, sounded like snake, sounded like unclean thing. And so the whole thing fit together. And it's you're worshiping something and made it unclean. Well, Let's go to verse 5 because we're not done with all of the accolades, the spiritual accolades. And verse 5 says this, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. And I want to stop right there because we might just say, well, you know, that's a pretty common phrase. Well, it wasn't common then. And we're going to see it's not just common verbiage. It's not just talk. We are going to see, number one, Hezekiah doesn't give in to the people and the culture of the people. Yeah, I know. You're all worshiping pagan gods as well as Yahweh. No more. It's wrong. It's sin. I don't care if you like me or not. And then, I don't want to be a spoiler here, but we're going to see that Assyria that has already taken the northern kingdom into captivity is going to come against Hezekiah. What is Hezekiah going to do? Well, I'm not going to tell you. And I don't want you to read ahead. We'll, we'll talk about that probably next week. But I, I'll, I'll tell you this. He trusts in the Lord. He doesn't make an alliance 
All right, so that's, that's as much as I'm going to go there. Well, he trusts in the Lord. doesn't matter what kind of trial it is or what kind of catastrophe he thinks it could cause by trusting the Lord and not trusting in the alliance. He's going to trust in the Lord to do what's right, regardless what the people think or what the people want. He is going to follow David and follow after David's example. Look at verse 6. It says, For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, let me go back to verse 5 and finish that second part. So it says he trusted the Lord, but it must have been a, a tremendous trust because he says, so that after him, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, excepting David, of course. So here we have someone out of the clear blue that is going to live for the Lord. Let me just make a quick application here. We might live in an evil world and in an evil time. And it may cause a lot of influence to people that it shouldn't cause influence to. And you say, but what am I? Who am I? What am I going to do? You could be the one person who takes the stand for Christ, regardless of what other people say, regardless of what other consequences happen, you're going to be the one who comes down on the Lord's side. That's the kind of guy that Hezekiah was. Then looking at verse 6, it says, for he clung to the Lord. I love this word. What does it mean? Well, of course, he couldn't do it literally. It did mean that 24 hours a day he was there by the altar clinging to the altar. But what it does mean, it's an explanation of his trust. If you were to think about your faith and that your faith has arms, the, metaphorically, the arms of your faith, and what are the arms of your faith doing? They're clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can even use the word embrace. And I love that concept when you think about salvation. So, so you know, you, 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 the scripture says you can call upon the Lord, you can receive him as your savior, you could do all of these things. But what does that mean? It means the arms of your faith reach out and take him and cling to him and embrace him as your savior, the one who died on the cross for your sins. What a beautiful picture. And at that moment, you are forgiven and given eternal life. But let me just say something else too. You don't stop clinging to him. You know, you think of all of the trials that you have and the things in your life and some of those things you say, Lord, I can't do this. I don't have it in me to do this. And of course, the Lord is not upset with that. The Lord's in agreement with that and tells us like he told Paul, well, in your weakness, my power is made strong. You must rely upon me, you must cling upon me to be able to live the life that pleases God. So I, I love that terminology, and, and it's, it's been uh, precious to me for quite some time. Now, we've talked an awful lot 
about Hezekiah. I'd like to turn to 2 Chronicles and talk some more about Hezekiah. Now, actually, I want to turn to chapter 29, chapter 30, and chapter 31. I'm, I'm going to try to go through these the best I can and pick and choose certain verses that are going to be highlighted. But one of the things that we're going to see is Hezekiah starts a revival. And we're going to look at some principles of revival at the end of this tonight. But I would say there's two important things. Number one, revival is centered around the word of God, not culture, not people's ideas, not new fads in the Christian life, but by the word of God. And the other thing is, it is a message and a lesson for leadership. It's often led by leadership. It doesn't have to be, and that's the good news. What about if, if you're thinking your leadership is not leading you spiritually? Well, maybe time to get new leadership, and I hope that's not the case here. But the point I want to make is you could be the one who begins the revival. You could be the one who begins that revival. So now let's look at Hezekiah's revival. And again, what I want us to focus on are the evidences. He's not rolling up and down the aisles, howling at the devil. He's not doing all of those outrageous things that somehow or other, I, I'm, I'm thinking that our Lord is so disappointed at times in believers because they do things like that. What we're going to see is he begins in the repair of the house of God from what had happened with his father. He's going to institute the sacrifices again. By the way, if you remember, they took, Ahaz did, took the place, the altar where they had the sacrifices and moved it to the side, moved it out of the way. It wasn't important anymore. And that's where they put this altar to a pagan god. Yeah, this is Israel. And so Hezekiah institutes that back, makes a covenant with the Lord, cleanses the house of the Lord, begins to institute the Levitical priesthood so everything is getting back. And then he calls for people from the northern kingdom to come down and worship at the temple Worship the Lord in Jerusalem. Up till this point, that hasn't happened. They made their own gods. They made these, these golden calves, and they were all worshiping there in the northern kingdom. They didn't want to come down to Jerusalem, and he actually gets some of them to come down and worship in Jerusalem. Well, let's, let's just look through this then. So let's turn to 2 Kings chapter. 29, and we want to look at verse 3. I'm going to have us look to a number of these verses. We're not going to look at all of them, although we could. By popular demand, I would look at them all. Well, in Second Chronicles then, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 29, it says this, 
Now, again, what are we looking at here? We're looking at another aspect of Hezekiah. And it says, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So his father had changed some of that. His father had changed some of that in case one of the pagan kings comes to visit. He won't be convicted about the temple. It would be more pagan friendly. A son, first year, first month, he's repairing it right away. That's, that's the priority. We find in verses 4 through 6 of the same chapter that he institutes the priesthood, consecrates them. Verses 4 through 6 says, He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. Then he said to them, Listen to me, O Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. What uncleanness? The uncleanness of all of these pagan altars and worship. He says, for our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. Now, usually when he talks, when these, these uh, kings or Old Testament Individuals talk about the fathers. They're talking about a long line of heritage. And he was. But he was beginning with his own father, Ahaz, who truly, just when you thought you've seen it all, with these kings, he comes up with a greater way to deface the temple and the name of the Lord. We find out then he begins to have them institute burn offerings and incense back to the Lord. Look at verse 7. And I, it looks like I'm reading every verse, but, but I'm not. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. But that's going to change. He makes a covenant with the Lord. And, and as you're thinking about the consecration, you're thinking about a covenant for the Christian, I think it means dedication. Um, and I know even in some circles, the idea of dedicating yourself to the Lord, some people are discouraged with that, uh, discouraged with that idea, but I, I'm not, I'm not at all. In fact, I think there ought to be times, plural, in your life when you dedicate yourself to the Lord. You know, many times it's when we're young in the Lord and we go off to a camp and we hear a stir, stirring message about wanting to serve the Lord and live for him and we dedicate our lives to the Lord. And I think the Lord takes it seriously. Well, maybe some time goes on and the Lord reminds us about that and we see perhaps we're not being as dedicated as we thought we were going to be to dedicate ourselves again. And oftentimes when I get done preaching a message, um, you know, I'm so wound up that I think of, Lord, we dedicate ourselves to you anew and afresh, uh, dedicating myself for what we just studied from the word of God. Anyway, it says, now it is in my heart, verse 10, to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. 
He cleanses the house of the Lord, verses 16 and 17. The priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. Of course, cleansing it, you're, you're not going out there with Ajax or Mr. Clean cleansing it. You're cleansing it with the blood, the blood of these sacrifices. And verses 20 through 24, you don't have to look at that, but Hezekiah himself is involved with these sacrifices and offerings and gets that whole thing going again. And then we go to chapter 30, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, this has got to be pleasing to the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 1, now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah. So evidently, this is before, I think this is right chronologically, this is before the northern kingdom was taken into captivity. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel, the north, and Judah, the south, and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Well, let me just kind of go through this here for a second. So here are the 12 tribes of Israel, and I'm going to zoom in, but you can see where I have it highlighted in the red. That is Judah and Jerusalem. The only other tribe that's with them is Benjamin. You do see Simeon there, but they believe that somehow or other Simeon kind of just... Um, melded right with Judah. So that is the southern kingdom. They have Jerusalem there. And where we are is that whole northern kingdom has been taken into captivity, but not yet. Not in Second Chronicles that we're looking at and not in Second Kings where we're looking at. Well, let's zoom in. Let's zoom in on the northern. So you could see that red line down there at the tribe of Benjamin, and that was the boundary. And, of course, the boundary, uh, would they would have wars over that boundary from time to time, and we've actually have seen that. Um, in fact, one of them is at the place of Ramah, and Ramah is quoted in Matthew when it talked about the, when Herod killed all the children. So anyway, we won't go into that now, but we, we have talked about that. There's the northern kingdom there, and he says, he says Ephraim and Manasseh, and he's going to go on to include Zebulun, and he's going to call uh, include Asher. So you can you you can actually see there those places, and this is incredible because there has been a division. The whole time, ever since the kingdom was divided. And Hezekiah is starting a revival in both kingdoms. Now, look at verses 10 and 11. I will ask you to look at Second Chronicles 30, verses 10 and 11. So they sent out these letters, and verse 10 is kind of sad, but I would say somewhat expected. It says, so the couriers passed from city to city in the northern kingdom through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mock them. 
Did Hezekiah trust the Lord? He absolutely did. But what if people laughed at him? He trusted the Lord. He was going to trust the Lord no matter what. It reminds me, really, of Proverbs 3, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So you're trying to figure it out, and I'll trust you, Lord, just as soon as I figure it out. Well, that's not always going to happen, and usually we only figure it out after it happens. 2020, hindsight is 2020. But the, the, the main part of that verse is trust the Lord. I don't have to understand it. I don't have to understand it. I just have to trust the Lord. I don't under, have to understand how it works. But I know that the Lord is going to make it work. You know, probably the majority of us in here, not all of us, but the majority of us in here don't know how our vehicles work. Probably all of us in here don't know how Fords work. Does anybody? Do Fords work? Anyway, I'm kidding. That, that was actually brought up at the picnic. Uh, I had one person tell me about, I don't know, some of these people don't know how good Chevys are. And then I had somebody come up and tell me, well, some of these people don't know how good Fords are. Anyway, um, you don't have to know how it works, but you can still stick a key in, put gas in it, and you can drive it. In other words, you're trusting in that vehicle to a degree to run. You don't know how it runs, so it's the same with the Lord. There's no way we can understand all of the facets of God's will. You know, we think of God sometimes as, you know, he has one action for one aspect of his will, except that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, and he's omnipotent. He's doing all of that for all believers. And, and not only that, but it's like he could be 10 steps ahead in your life and my life. He's 10 steps ahead, and we're looking at number one, and we're so fearful that number one is not going to work out, and God says, number one, number one, I'm on number 10. What are you doing fearing number one? Well, the point is, is that they laughed at him and it did not stop him. He trusted the Lord. He clung to the Lord. And then look at verse 11. This is what happens when you trust the Lord. Doesn't matter what the consequences are. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So is this a revival or what? This is a revival. This is when you're reaching out to unbelievers, the unchurched, and you're living your life. You're not becoming like them. Hey, I'll tell you what. Why don't we, um, why don't we all go worship the Asherim God? And while we're worshiping Asherim, I'll tell you about Yahweh. And then maybe you'll worship Yahweh alone. That doesn't make sense at all. And yet, that is the way that some churches attempt to win the world. Let's be like the world so we can win them for Christ. And many times the world says, no, wait a second. You're living like the world. We are the world. Why do we need to come to you? And second of all, I think there's I think there's the idea that the world even knows you're not supposed to be like the world. 
And I would dare say that if there's any in the world that the Lord is working on their heart, they don't want you to be like the world. They want you to be different. They want you to have the answers. They want to change and not be like the world anymore. And they're looking for somebody, someone who's willing to trust the Lord and do that in that way. Well, we have a wonderful commentary in this. In, in verse 26, we'll drop down to 26. Because this has been instituted, it says, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And, of course, the days of David. They had not been worshiping the Lord. They had not been dedicated to the Lord and they didn't have joy all those years. You want joy? Then serve the Lord. Serve the Lord wholeheartedly. That's where joy comes. May I remind us again, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. But he's not giving you joy in the sense of Laughing at jokes, and I'm not saying it's wrong to laugh at jokes. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, I just, I don't like the idea that they call them dad jokes anymore. I don't know why. I mean, I still think that stuff is funny, but um, <laughs> yes, and I am a dad. But, but anyway, I mean, they're good jokes. Um, the idea, what joy is, regardless of what you're going through or what's happening or how much even Satan is coming against you in the church, you have joy. You have the joy of the Lord. In fact, in Nehemiah, where there was also a revival, it was the joy of the Lord is our strength. And they had joy like they hadn't had for a long time. Now, I want you all to definitely turn here. Second Chronicles chapter 31, verse 1. This is one of the best insights of this whole section second chronicles chapter 31 verse 1 it says now when all this was finished all israel who were present went out to the cities of judah broke the pillars in pieces cut down the asherim and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his possession. That, beloved, is a beautiful picture of revival. So we see in 2 Kings, and, and Hezekiah does get the credit. He's the one leading that, that, that whole thing spiritually. But the, ch the real change comes when you get back to the word of God, when you get back to obedience. And it's the heart that gets changed spiritually. And the people went out and destroyed it all. That is just absolutely fantastic. Now going back to verse 7 of Second Kings. We're back in Second Kings now. So going back to Second Kings, chapter 18, verse 7, concluding this now, it says, And the Lord was with him, 
wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Very interesting. Verse 8. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to the fortified city. So God was indeed fulfilling his promise to the covenant he made with Israel. And then here it is. This is about the third time now. Including Second Chronicles, but this is the, the another time, third time in detail. He's going to talk about the fall of the Northern Kingdom. Why? Well, because he doesn't want them to ever forget. Because if you're going to say what was some of the worst things that ever happened in the history of Israel, it was when they were kicked out of the promised land taken into captivity. And it says it a third time, so it would never, never happen again. It says, now in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years, they captured it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was captured. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habor and the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And verse 12, he's going to not only say what happened, but he's going to say why it happened because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded them, they would neither listen nor do it. And again, not so much here, but in the last description, it was about the foreign gods that they worshipped. The sad news is, is now there's Judah. Judah has about maybe 200 years left. They have seen what has happened to the northern kingdom. And yet their kings, many of the kings, not all, but most of the kings go back to worshiping idols. And Jeremiah the prophet is telling them and telling them and telling them over and over, the same thing is going to happen to you. And at the end of about 200 years, the king of Babylonia, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, comes and conquers Judah and the holy city, Jerusalem. Oh, that we would not transgress against his word. Oh, that we would follow his word and do these things. Well, just quickly, I wanted to talk about revival and spiritual revival and I think I think the passage has done that and I've already said that spiritual revival is a top priority and not the kind that we read that's happening in, in some within the church today but a real one one that's centered on the word of God and if you would allow me to read from Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 to conclude this, and notice how the word of God is brought back into the people's lives 
red, and notice how the people respond. They don't fall on the floor. They don't roll down the, the aisle. They don't throw greasy French fries on the table and laugh and laugh. They're not stuck to the floor for hours. Watch this. And all the people gathered as one man. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. At this square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book. The book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the laurel, the law, before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. Clearly too long of a sermon. Now I lost my place. <laughs> In the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now he got their attention. They hadn't heard the law in a long time. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Massasiah on his right hand, and Padiah. Mishael, and Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. This is why we have the standing for the reading of the word of God in our worship service. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, this isn't being stuck to the ground. This isn't the, the rolling on the ground. This is bowing low because they are humbled and they are worshiping the Lord. Go to verse 8. It says, they read from the book of the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. That's what we're supposed to do as pastors and preachers and teachers. We're to take the word of God, study it, understand it, and make it understandable. Verse 9, then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. They gathered together for a feast, for a festival. But when they heard the law of God, they were humbled. They fell prostrate before the Lord. They were weeping because they were convicted of sin. Beloved, that is the evidence of revival. And it happened with Hezekiah, and it happened here with Ezra and Nehemiah. And so that's why I believe that at Grace Bible Church, we, we keep the word of God at the very center. Because if there's any hope at all for people to come to Christ, any hope at all for people to grow in Christ, any hope at all for there to be a revival, if at least in our own hearts, in our own church, or even the world, it comes from the word of God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it's, it's not to have some new fad or something new that other people aren't doing, but when we look at it, it actually truly is ridiculous and not biblical at all. In fact, Father, I would have to say it would be easier to throw greasy french fries than it would be to humble ourselves before you, and yet that's what we're called to do. Would you help us, Lord, in the spirit of Hezekiah and Ezra and Nehemiah, would you help us, Lord, to dedicate ourselves anew and afresh to live for you, to follow you, to follow your word, to be used of you in a mighty way and in a way that pleases you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.